Welcome to Public Health On Call, a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Our focus is the novel coronavirus. I'm Josh Sharfstein, a faculty member at Johns Hopkins and also a former secretary of Maryland's health department. Our goal with this podcast is to bring evidence and experts to help you understand today's news about the novel coronavirus and what it means for tomorrow. If you have questions, you can email them to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. That's publichealthquestion at jhu.edu for future podcast episodes. Today, Stephanie Desmond talks to clinical psychologist Dr. Megan Hosey of the Johns Hopkins Hospital Intensive Care Unit. They discuss the challenges of being a patient in the intensive care unit, as well as the challenges of having been a patient in the intensive care unit. Let's listen. Thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure to be here. Megan, you're a clinical psychologist in the Hopkins ICU. Could you tell me sort of what that means? Yes. I have the opportunity to work with patients who need help to survive. That looks like mechanical ventilation, types of medications that help keep blood pressure up, and sometimes dialysis. I get to be there because, as you can imagine, the ICU is a pretty scary place to be. My day-to-day looks like talking to patients about what life looked like before the ICU, getting a sense of what they're hoping to get back to, understanding about how their cognition looks in the ICU, because as we'll probably discuss, ICU delirium is something that's very common, and then finally managing the anxiety that might come along with being mechanically ventilated. This is also that they can engage more fully in their rehabilitation and hopefully get stronger and out of the hospital faster. And obviously we're talking about this today in the context of COVID-19. So you have seen patients uh, sort of as they come off the ventilators uh, in the ICU after being um, very sick with COVID-19. How do these patients sort of look differently or behave differently than other patients or are they uh, sort of just on a grander scale perhaps? Well, certainly there are more patients in our hospital requiring mechanical ventilation now. Um, What we can say about patients who are COVID positive is that they've required more amounts of sedation and had a little bit less access to our providers than usual because of the infection itself. Uh, Meaning if a a provider is having to don PPE, for example, to get into a room, it might mean a little less access. So you can imagine that with more sedation and less access to providers, we're looking at a couple of things. One is increased delirium. So more of our patients are having this difficulty with attention, difficulty tracking time, more incidents of hallucinations and delusions. We think, certainly we're early in this process, but this is what we think. And so when they are becoming alert and awake, there's often an anxiety about, oh my gosh, what the heck has happened to me? You're telling me it's two weeks ago. And often patients are telling you they don't really fully remember why they're here with us. So we're starting when the patients are alert and awake, really from ground zero at explaining what's happened, why loved ones aren't around, and why everybody is wearing all this crazy gear. That's got to be really uh, an extra layer of anxiety. They're not seeing, you know, their wife isn't holding their hand and they can't see your face. Is is that something that causes sort of takes extra time then to sort of move on from? 
That's my guess. So we do have a little bit of data from previous pandemics, including the SARS pandemics, where patients went back and told researchers some of the scariest thing was being isolated and alone. And so providers who went the extra mile to demonstrate their care really were a buffer to some of these negative mental health outcomes that they might experience, like anxiety, depression, or PTSD, and certainly some of the stigma around some of the isolation and the extra precautions that we need to take also has a bit of an effect. So all of these efforts to try to move closer to our patients, explain more about what's going on, we hope is a buffer later. So um, I wanted to talk to you, you mentioned delirium. I understand that there's sort of a whole syndrome that comes when you potentially comes when you've been on a ventilator for a long period of time, whether you've had COVID or something else. Can you tell me about that? Yes. So post-intensive care syndrome, or we call it PICS, is a constellation of symptoms that patients might experience after they've been in the intensive care unit. They might experience ICU-acquired weakness, so that's difficulty moving limbs and getting back up and walking again. It involves changes in cognition, so we're, we're seeing things like decreases in attention, learning, memory, processing speed. And mental health challenges, including anxiety, depression, PTSD. So these are the constellation of symptoms that patients might experience. And we often find that really troublingly, it means difficulty getting back to doing stuff they used to do. So getting back to work, driving, and even sometimes getting in the way of having meaningful relationships with their loved ones when they get home. And this happens even in patients who didn't sort of start out with anxiety. Isn't that right? That's true. We do need to do a little bit more legwork to see what kind of mental health burden people are coming into the ICU with beforehand, but there are several patients who have newly acquired anxiety or depression after this, and there's a lot of factors that kind of go into that. And you've seen that with folks with other illnesses in the past, that they, who've been in the ICU for a long time, they, they suffer anxiety even if they didn't come in with it. That's right, yep. So when I um, am on a ventilator, you have to sedate me, right? Because otherwise, I wouldn't really be able to tolerate it. Is that right? So actually, we are moving away from that model. COVID-19 has challenged that because of the severity of illness that people experience, as well as our ability to be in the room with them. However, over the course of the past 10 to 15 years, we've got a lot of research that suggests what we really want to do is promote patients being awake and alert, even if they are on the ventilator. All of this comes in a movement we call early rehabilitation. So what we used to think was that, you know, sedating patients meant that they were quietly laying there resting, but really all of that meant that in the long run, they were going to have worse outcomes because of this ICU acquired weakness. And because they're not actually quietly sleeping there, they're having this intense delirium. So this movement has really been, let's keep people awake and moving as much as possible. But you said that's had to slow down a little. Exactly. Yep. And um, I would defer to my ICU physician colleagues to talk a little bit more about the mechanics of that. But yeah, there have been a few reasons we need to increase sedation in some of these folks. And as you said, partially because there's not as much time with them because there's so many of them. Is that right? 
Um, I think the the main barrier is that all of this PPE people have to take on and off and able to be able to get into the room with patients is just an extra layer of, of time that is a barrier to our getting a, to be able to be in there with them as we would if it wasn't a highly infectious disease setting. So I've also, my understanding also is that, so COVID patients who are in there a long time are also suffering potentially, again, where this is still so new, right? Yeah, exactly. We're still learning all the time, but they're suffering from organ damage, uh, memory loss, sort of a mm. whole host of issues coming off the ventilator. Does that slow their recovery going forward? So some patients, like you're thinking, can have multi-organ failure. So we think that it predominantly, that COVID predominantly attacks the lungs. And certainly if patients are also having other organ failure as a result, so for example, challenges with the heart or the kidneys, then yes, that does mean that they'll be in the ICU longer. So... What are you, um, I know, for example, that I read about and heard about and actually know someone who have been on ventilators for a month or more. In your prior work on, on ICU patients, is this something that the longer they're in, the more difficult it is uh, moving forward to recover? You know, surprisingly, the literature so far suggests that severity of illness is not necessarily an indicator of people's mental health outcomes. It may be the case that it could be related to some cognitive outcomes like attention, learning, memory, but if these things like how sick you are aren't necessarily good predictors of mental health outcomes, believe it or not. So what what, what has surprised you uh, about the COVID patients as compared to perhaps patients you've worked with in the past? Well, I think one thing that's really different in getting to work with these folks is the unique perspective of people who've had an infectious disease like this. So patients telling me things like, I'm a little afraid to go home because I don't want to infect my loved ones and asking for ways that if they're still COVID positive, how can I protect my loved ones? People from some communities are telling me a little bit about COVID stigma and the reluctance of them and their family members to tell people in the community that they've been diagnosed. Some of my patients are telling me that, you know, this isolation from family is really part of the worst part of the hospitalization process going on now. And so the ways that we're trying to overcome all of this are to give good guidelines. Unfortunately, our hospital epidemiology and infection control teams are helping patients sort of navigate what it will be like when they go home. And certainly we're trying to do the best we can to overcome that separation from family, whether it be helping to set up FaceTime dates. And then also I know, for example, a good colleague, Allison Turnbull, is um, working with a legion of med students who are calling family members each day just to check in with them and sort of coach them about how to talk to the medical teams about their questions about their loved ones. So there are these new challenges. And I've just been, I guess that's the thing that doesn't surprise me, but I'm the most inspired by is the way that Hopkins folks are just willing to look at every challenge and then figure out a way to overcome it. It's really, really inspiring. And when, um, so folks eventually, hopefully some of them will be going home, yeah. right? Yes. They spent a long time on the ventilator and you've been discharging them and they go home. This could 
they may not feel cured sort of after they've been on a ventilator for a long time. How long could these impacts last? So the research that we have right now suggests that all of our patients will potentially view ICU as a before and after in their life. So for example, a before and after in your life might also include the birth of a child, the death of a parent, the beginning of an excellent job. And so ICU is really a before and after kind of defining moment in life. So I would say that almost 100% of our patients will say that nothing will be exactly the same. In terms of long-term impairments, we do have studies um, up to five years out that suggest that patients are at risk for PTSD, anxiety, and depression at higher rates than the general population up to five years out. The good news is, again, that there's, there's help for this. So it's totally normal if you've been through an ICU to think, boy, things don't feel exactly the same. And it's a great thing to ask for help if you think it's getting in the way of your life. Megan Hosey, this has really been interesting. So thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Public Health on Call, a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Please send questions to be covered in future podcasts to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. This podcast is produced by Josh Sharfstein, Lindsay Smith-Rogers, and Lamare Morales. Audio production by Niall Owen-McCusker and Spencer Greer, with support from Chip Hickey. Distribution by Nick Moran. Thank you for listening.